Good morning, Island Pond Baptist Church. I'm so glad to be here. Over the years, this church, these people in this room, uh, have, have been a flagship church uh, for not just New Hampshire, but all of New England. And it's such a privilege to be here. We just want to say thank you on behalf of Dr. Terry Dorsett, who is our Executive Director of the Baptist Churches of New England. We are a family of 380 uh, churches all across the six New England states. And Island Pond Baptist Church uh, uh, plays a very, very prominent role here, particularly in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, you know, recently, uh, the most uh, recent polls that come out annually about the state of religion in America have placed our state, New Hampshire, at the very bottom of the least religious state in the country. I suppose you already knew that. And uh, we've always been occupying one of those lowest positions, but now it seems uh, that Vermont has had an uptick in the number of evangelicals, and uh, that places us now at the very bottom. And so uh, that just speaks to how important you are. You are a very, very bright spot in a very, very spiritually dark place. And it's a blessing and a privilege and a joy for me to be here with you today as we study the Word of God. A couple of years ago, Deanne and I attended a marriage enrichment weekend right here along the coast here in New Hampshire. Uh, the speakers were highly professional, highly trained experienced uh, marriage uh, family uh, therapists, uh, and despite their wisdom, I found it very difficult to take seriously what one of the presenters had to say. You see, evidently that morning in the early session, uh, he was in a bit of a rush getting dressed, uh, and he had unknowingly pulled his sock up over the back of his pants leg. And I was sitting there toward the front, and so, so I couldn't help but notice that. And, and uh, the, the incongruity of the, of the weightiness of what he had to say and the comical way in which he looked was such a distraction, you know what I'm saying, that, that I had trouble taking seriously what he had to say. Born in Boston raised or educated in Harvard University and buried now at the nearby in Concord, Massachusetts, that American poet and philosopher Ralph Waldorf Emerson said uh, these words. He said, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you have to say. Have you heard that? It's true, isn't it? Uh, actions, finish it for me. Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. Now, we have been given words to say, haven't we? We've been given a message to share, to speak. And we, as Christians, need to be careful lest our actions undermine our message. Amen? And uh, we have to live lives that give credibility to the gospel, that adorn the gospel. We need to live lives of excellence and winsomeness, uh, lives that people can look at and respect so that they will pay attention to what we have to say. This morning, I want us to look at the life of a person who lived that kind of life, and we can learn from his example. His name is Benaiah. Uh, his story is given to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, beginning at verse 22. We find that in your Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, 
verses 22 through 25. Follow along now. We're going to read that. I'm sure we have that word. We're going to get that. There they are. Those guys in the back are awesome, aren't they? Way to go. They're waving at us. Okay, guys. And uh, so let's read that scripture and, and, and look at uh, the qualities of excellence uh, that were lived out in this man's life. And this was done without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is in an Old Testament context. And if, if somebody in that kind of a context could live a life of such excellence, my friends, I, I'm here to tell you that is within our reach as well. And so let this be an example for us who've been given uh, the message of the gospel to proclaim with our lips. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabziel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of his, the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a great name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Who was Benaiah? You know, the Scripture has rather frequent references to this man, but despite that fact, he seems to fly under the radar, and, and we really don't know a lot about him and haven't paid much attention to his biography. But if we piece together the various references in the Old Testament to Benaiah, uh, we find out uh, first and foremost that he was the consummate military career man, the consummate military career man. Uh, scripture explains that King David had divided Israel's army into 12 divisions. Each division contained 24,000 troops. Now, these divisions rotated in and out of service every month, 12 divisions, 12 months. And so each uh, served for a month at a time. Benaiah was the captain of the third division. However, because of uh, his service uh, to the king and the different roles that he played, we're told that his son, Amizadad, actually led that division in place of his father. Uh, we're also told that Benaiah was the most renowned member and the leader of this select group of loyal warriors uh, that we know of as David's 30 mighty men. There our text makes reference to that. The 30 mighty men, who were they? They were forerunners of our military elite. Uh, they were uh, the, the uh, you know, the ancient day army rangers or, or the Navy SEALs. You might say that Benaiah was like a real-life Top Gun maverick. He was one of the most renowned of King David's special forces. And because of his exceptional service, his, his track record of doing things with excellence, a valiant man doing hard, courageous acts, and not just one, but repeatedly, because of that kind of life of excellence, uh, he was promoted 
and he became uh, the leader of David's royal bodyguard, a trusted servant. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, during the co-regency of Solomon and David together, when they both reigned together before David's death, Benaiah became the commander of the entire Israel army in place of the disloyal Joab. So you can see that, that he's really a remarkable character, though somewhat in the background of those other characters in the Old Testament during the, the reign of David and Solomon. But during his distinguished career, Benaiah became famous, as it says in our text, as a doer of great deeds. You see that phrase, a doer of great deeds. Now that word great can refer to great in quantity or great in significance and in accomplishment. Uh, and so you see how the different translations try to struggle with how to, tr how to translate uh, that adjective great. He was a doer of great deeds. Uh, the Christian Standard Version says that he did many exploits. And so by rendering it that way, it kind of combines both of those ideas into one phrase, many exploits. These are remarkable accomplishments, and he did many of them. Uh, the contemporary English version, I love how it's rendered, it says that Benaiah did some amazing things. Don't you love that? He did some amazing things. And what they talk about him, and they record his biography, that's what they say. That man did some amazing things. And so I want us this morning to take a look at some of those amazing things that characterize the life of this servant of King David, and, and just let that become an inspiration to us. Because he did all of these without the empowerment of the Spirit of God that, who indwells you and me as, as New Testament believers in Christ. And we're going to take them in reverse order, all right? And so let's look at these things that are listed for us in our Scripture, but, but to uh, view them in reverse order. In verse 23, it says here that he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. Well, a cubit uh, was an ancient uh, measurement uh, between uh, a person's elbow and the tip of their middle finger. It's generally considered to be 18 inches, all right? And so five cubits would equate in, in our modern-day measurement as seven and a half feet tall, seven and a half feet tall. When's the last time you saw somebody that tall? I mean, uh, they would just tower over everybody in the room. Uh, and he was a soldier. No, uh, no question that he would be strong and bulky and, and, and healthy. And, and uh, it says here, that this Egyptian soldier had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. Now, I understand, when's the last time you've been out to, to do some work on your loom and, you know, in your, in your, in your, in your barn? Uh, so that, that phrase doesn't really communicate very well to us in the modern world, a weaver's beam. I had to look that up and do a little research. And uh, in the ancient day, uh, the weaver's beam uh, was perched, it was a it was a thick, long rod that rested at the top of, of the loom, uh, which all of the thread that was weighted was supported by. And then you could even wind that up as the cloth, as you wove the cloth, you could use that to wind uh, what you woven. 
I think we have some experienced weavers in the room here. Okay. And, uh, but it's interesting that uh, in the second and third centuries, uh, there were a large population of Jewish people who lived outside of Israel uh, in North Africa, and they lost touch with their capacity to speak the Hebrew language, all right? Uh, and so they couldn't read the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and so the Hebrew scholars in North Africa translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek because that was the language that even the Jewish people began to speak, not to mention uh, uh, the Gentile church. Uh, that translation is known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation, they take that phrase like a weaver's beam and they put it into the Greek language like the side of a ladder, like the side of a ladder. So you can imagine that. If, 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 they, if that word picture of a weaver's beam doesn't communicate, maybe the word picture of the side of a ladder would, would make the, it clear to us. Just gives you a sense of the, of the thickness and the diameter of the shaft of that uh, uh, opponent's spear. It was a humongous pole-like spear that he held in his hand. And then it says here that, that Beniah, he went down to him with a staff. Now, the word staff literally means a stick. Some translations uh, render this uh, word as a club. And uh, so whether it was like the, the shepherd's staff uh, or more just a, just a rudimentary, unsophisticated club that, that they would use in battle, uh, he went down to him with this vastly uh, inferior instrument of, of battle, a club in his hand, uh, and he snatched the spear out of his opponent's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. Wow, <laughs> what a guy Beniah was. And uh, so let's just you know, unpack that for a minute. And, and what does that tell us about this man, Beniah? Well, the Egyptian warrior was much taller very likely much stronger than Benaiah. His weapon was clearly much more deadly, far more sophisticated than the simple staff or stick wielded by Benaiah. But in spite of that, Benaiah was more skilled in using his stick than the giant was in using his huge deadly spear. He beat his enemy not with superior strength, not with superior size and reach, not with superior equipment, but Benaiah beat his opponent with superior skill. He was more skillful at using his club than his opponent was at using his spear. Friends, we need to be skilled in what we do to give weight to the words of the gospel that we speak. We need, we need when we show up at work, when we do things in, in volunteer capacity in our community, we need to do these things with excellence and with skill, whatever your job is. Teaching a class of energetic kindergartners, brewing a cup of cappuccino as a, uh, at Starbucks, uh, stocking the shelves at Market Basket, plowing the snow off of a customer's driveway, fixing and repairing somebody's automobile. Whatever it is you do, do it with skill. That gives weight to your words when you speak the gospel. 
The Bible says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that means that we do everything as a representative of Christ. And so we should never do anything with mediocrity, you know, just good enough to get it done and leave it at that, but to do it with excellence and with skill. There was an army division during World War II that is credited with coming up with the phrase, the five Ps. Have you ever heard of the five Ps? Some of our military personnel may be familiar with that phrase. Uh, when I was just a young man, just beginning to get started in, in, in my working life, uh, I was introduced to the five Ps. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. Say that fast 10 times. <laughs> prior, 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 prior preparation prevents poor performance. Look at your neighbor and tell them the five Ps, all right? I want to make sure you get that down. Look at your neighbor and tell them the five Ps. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. Okay, amen. You know, I have found that if we just live that out, that one little slogan and let that become kind of a way that we approach our work and what we do, we will begin to live our lives with greater excellence and with greater skill. We don't show up at the last minute and carry our, out our duties with mediocrity, but we're prepared, we're rehearsed, we're practiced, and we do it with skill and with excellence. Secondly, I want you to notice that Benaiah didn't avoid doing difficult tasks. Look at me then at verse 22, the second half of 22. It says that he went down... And he struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Well, I just, I just find this one of the most intriguing uh, descriptions uh, of verses in, in the entire, because it almost seems that the, uh, you, you can see that the author is including some detail that, that may be considered superfluous, but he's trying to make a point here about the kind of man that Benaiah was and the, and the kind of life that he lived out. And so he, uh, not only did he do this amazing exploit of, of, of killing an opponent who was vastly uh, superior than he was, but he had greater skill, but he went down and he struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Here's a picture of an Asian lion. The Asian lion's are deadly beasts. They're, they're, they're smaller than the African lion, but nevertheless, they can weigh up to 500 pounds, and they are equipped with these powerful claws and these large dagger-like canine teeth, which are used to, to drag their prey to the ground and then rip open their flesh. That's how they are designed. That's how they're wired together. That's what they do, all right? Now, this pit that the Bible speaks about, uh, where, this, where this encounter uh, occurred, was a cistern. A cistern, uh, the ancients would, would chisel out cisterns in, in bedrock, or they would dig out uh, cisterns uh, in uh, the earth and then cover, them with, uh, cover it with plaster in order to create a reservoir that would catch the rainwater to supply uh, their needs. Uh, and so, uh, this lion found himself stuck in the pit. The people needed to get down to the pit to get their water. And so, something had to be done with that lion. And, 
It was Benaiah who took care of business. He went down and he struck down the lion in the pit. And then it adds this, this interesting detail on a snowy day. He did it all on a snowy day. Now think about it. It's cold outside. Man, I just want to stay in here where it's warm today. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's wet and it's damp and, uh, and it's slippery on top of everything else. And so what is the scripture telling us about the kind of man that Benaiah was? He was not afraid of doing hard jobs. I mean, you talk about a difficult job. This was hard times three. Hard enough to kill a lion, isn't it? Even under the best of conditions, that's not an easy thing to do, all right? But it makes it even doubly hard to do it in a pit. There's no escape. I mean, there's no way to maneuver. It's tight quarters. There's no way out. The lion couldn't get out. Benaiah couldn't get out. It was either do or die. You know, there was no way to maneuver or run. Uh, And so it makes it even more difficult to do it in that kind of constraining environment, and then do it when it's cold and damp and when the ground is slick and soggy, difficult times three. But he went down and he slew a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. Wasn't afraid to do things that are difficult. We need to be like that. I mean, you know, just to do the easy stuff, we need to distinguish ourselves from ordinary people and become known as people who can do the hard jobs. We can be called on to do the tough jobs, and we know they know that we'll do them well. Just this past week, I went uh, down, I was on Craigslist, I'm building a little garden pathway through the border garden of our, of our backyard, and, and that's kind of therapeutic for me to get out in the garden and get my hands dirty and, you know, plant stuff and, and all of that. I just enjoy that. Plants can't talk back to you, you know? Well, they actually, they do. They tell you if, if you're overwatering them, if they're thirsty, they do talk back to you a little bit. But uh, anyway, I'm just enjoying this, and I, and I, ran, I ran out of stepping stones. I found some off of Marketplace, uh, you know, Facebook Marketplace, and I went down into Massachusetts, and I, I, I got a pickup truck load of those, and I laid those out. And then I was, I was out of stepping stones, and I still had to go make more, uh, finish the pathway. So I was on uh, Craigslist and I saw down in Tingsboro, a man who had a, an old, an old uh, colonial era farm, uh, owned a lot of property down there in Tingsboro. Uh, and uh, you know how the, uh, how the old settlers, they would clear the fields, they would take all that, that stone, that field stone and just pile it up kind of in the low areas and so they could clear the fields to, to have pasture or fields or to grow things on, primarily, I suppose, for pasture. And so he said, Do we, have, uh, we have some stone walls and, and, and rock piles that go back 250 years, and you're welcome to come and select whatever you need for your, for your projects. And so I said, okay. And I, I said, oh, I'll come down there. I want to get some stepping stones, you know. And now... Most of our rocks around here, this is the grand, uh, you know, field stones are generally rounded off in shape, but every now and then you, you get fortunate, you find a nice flat stepping stone. And, and, uh, and so I went through there, he showed me where it was, I had to drive my truck back into the woods, it was wet, it was that day last week and it was so muggy, the high humidity, it was almost like Indian summer, it was, you know, uh, it was, uh, uh, I was perspiring, it was so warm out there. 
the mosquitoes were swarming and just, just, it was buggy and I was getting bit by the mosquitoes and I was sweating and, and then the ground was lumpy and slippery because of the, the wetness of, of the, those woods and, and all the rocks were everywhere and the undergrowth was so thick and there were briars and, uh, I was looking forward to collecting stepping stones, but after about the first or second stone, I realized, whoa, this is hard work. This is hard work. And I was ready to quit right then and there. I said, I'm going to have to quit this. And then I thought better of it. I said, no, God wants us to be people who are willing to do hard work. So I just struggled along with that. Some of those stones were so big that they probably should be categorized as two-man stones. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. And I was having to manhandle the two-man stones all by myself, and I, w- and I found this beautiful, it was a two-man stone, uh, but I was making my way back to the truck, and I stepped into this mucky spot there in the forest, and when I pulled my foot up, my, my shoe got stuck in the mud. And so I'm walking around without my shoe on, and, I, and I, so I, I dropped the stone to go back and get my shoe, and when I dropped the stone, it cracked in two. I said, oh, man, this is work. But the, the, the half of that stone was still big enough to be a stepping stone. I said, well, I'll take it anyway. And, and so I picked it up, and I kept on going back to the car. Then I stumbled over that rough terrain, and I fell, and I dropped it again and broke it in two again. And so I finally got it back, and it was only about that big when it made it back to the truck. But that was the kind of day, and I wanted to quit because it was hard. And then I said, no, God wants his people to do hard work. Anybody can do an easy job. God wants us to be known as people who can do the hard jobs. Benaiah was that kind of a guy. He went down to a pit, and he killed a lion on a snowy day. And then finally... Look what it says here, uh, that he did not uh, avoid the the difficult tasks, but he did all of this, and he had a pattern of excellence. When you read this biography of of Benaiah, you see that he wasn't known just for one remarkable thing, one singular exploit, but many exploits, amazing things. Many deeds that were remarkable. And so he had this track record, this, this consistency, this pattern of excellence in his work. Do you see that? He did repeatedly remarkable work. And just some of it, the text messages just three of these things, but you get the sense that these are examples of the kind of life that he lived. He defeated not just one of Moab's great warriors, but he defeated two of them. Sometime later on a cold, wet, slippery day, he climbed down in the pit and he killed a lion. And then again, he took on a giant Egyptian warrior equipped with a huge spear and defeated him with only his club. He had a pattern of doing excellent work. And that kind of consistency is what gives credibility and makes our lives respectful. And people Take notice that adorns the gospel, and it is the kind of thing that gives us the right to be heard. In the book, Work Matters, this author, Tom Nelson, tells a story, and I close with this story about Steve Sample, 
Steve Semple was the president of the University of Southern California for 19 years. Uh, he retired in 2010. He's considered uh, the greatest university president of his generation. A remarkable guy. I think you would say he was a modern-day Beniah, a modern-day Beniah. He was a believer, and he did his work consistently with excellence. During his tenure, USC rose dramatically in the college rankings. Time Magazine, Princeton Review named USC College of the Year in, two, in the year 2000. He was an exceptionally gifted fundraiser, and he led the effort to raise nearly $3 billion for the school. And the endowments rose to over $4 billion, almost 10 times the amount that they had in endowments when he became the president. Prior to his arrival, USC had the reputation of being a second-choice school. Parents of high schoolers getting ready to go to college, you know what that means, a second-choice school. You always have your reach schools, and, then you, and you have different tiers of schools, you know, and you don't always get uh, the school you, you apply to. You know, you, sometimes you have to settle for maybe a second-choice. So USC was one of those in that category, not considered uh, the most desirable, not the most elite this was the place to go if a gifted student wasn't accepted at the more elite schools. But due to his skills, due to his excellent service, the USC was transformed. Pete Carroll, whose name you recognize now, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, he led the USC Trojans to a national football scholarship or championship. Uh, the university landed its first Nobel Prize. The university rose dramatically in academic rankings, and it now has become one of the nation's most elite universities. A modern-day Beniah. On May the 14th, 2010, Steve Sample gave his final commencement address. Speaking to a huge crowd of 40,000 USC students, Learned, distinguished faculty, administration, family and friends of the students gathered together for this, this occasion. I want to read you an excerpt of what he had to say, this modern-day Beniah. He asked the students an utterly unexpected question. He said, how do you feel about God? And then he continued, say what? I mean, you could just imagine how that went down on that day. How do you feel to that, to that secular audience? How do you feel about God? Why, this is what he said, why would anyone bring up God at a secular commencement ceremony? Surely most of us as modern intellectuals have grown beyond the point at which God or our relationship to Him is a serious question. But wait a minute. Let me assure you, I'm not trying to sell you a set of religious beliefs. He wasn't trying to cram the gospel down their throat. The question is not how should you feel about God, but how do you feel about God? Imagine the courage of this distinguished scholar, this, this uh, university president, to, to speak words like that in a setting like that. Then he goes on to say, 
What I have found is that the vast majority of people duck this question altogether. It's simply too scary or too overwhelming for them to address in any serious way. He reflects, there are millions of agnostics who have concluded that questions pertaining to God are simply unanswerable or unimportant, and yet who find it impossible to fully suppress their concerns for the spiritual and transcendent aspects of their own existence. What articulate and profound words he spoke. One of the painful realities that we must confront is that we, in the final analysis, are fully and completely human. As much as modern man wants to pridefully think how he has evolved and advanced into some kind of superior, you know, uh, being, he says, we are in the final analysis fully and completely human with all of the unsettling and uncomfortable characteristics with that word connotes. We are as fully human and no more human than our brothers and sisters in ancient Egypt or modern Mongolia. One of mankind's deepest and most abiding concerns for all times in all places, for all people, for every human being, is our feeling for and our relationship with God. And then he concludes, my point is that you may be able to run from your true feelings about God or non-God, but it is very difficult to hide from them in the long term. Thus, it is probably to your advantage, said this modern-day Benaiah, to discover, confront these feelings sooner rather than later. Steve Sample had earned the right to be heard. He was an administrative genius, one of the most gifted academic leaders of his generation, whose efforts catapulted that private school, University of, South Car uh, of Southern, Car uh, Southern California, from second rank school to elite university status. He'd earned the right to be heard. People respected him and respected what he had to say. Because he did his job with excellence, people listened to him when he spoke to them about God. Let's be like that. Let's be like Benaiah. Let's be like Steve Sample. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is within our grasp to do our work, to live out our lives with a remarkable excellence, to be willing to do the hard things and to be consistent in that so that people look at us with respect and pay attention when we speak to them the words of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray.